Well, good morning, Northwest Baptist Church. Well, thanks. Um, it is with a grateful heart that I stand before you for the last time as y'all's pastoral resident. For the last two years, this church has served to build up my family and I as we, as a gathering, work and serve towards the glory of the Lord. And even though my family prepared to go to Stillwater and serve the king there, I think that it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1. Therefore, this morning, we're going to take a pause at our series of going through the Old Testament in a year, and we're going to look at the third chapter of the book of Philippians, or the letter of Philippians. The reason that I've chosen this chapter to preach on as our final time together is because this chapter serves to encompass essentially the Christian life. It captures the gospel and it captures the only and proper response to someone who's interacted with the Lord. As we sang earlier that God is holy, holy, holy and that all of our actions are his. You look at the lives of people who have been transformed by the blood of Jesus and you see that one does not just know that God is holy, 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 but they experience it and they respond to it. And what Paul says in the chapter three of Philippians is a response that he has known from his experience with the Lord. But in fact, he actually builds off of something that Jesus said while he was here on this earth. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, Jesus is teaching a parable to many people. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, here Jesus speaks of our lives in this world and compares them to the value of being found in the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is where God dwells. This is his kingdom. But the value of the kingdom of God is not just that God dwells there, but that we get to know him. See, those who find the kingdom get to be where God is and they also get to know who the Lord is. Not like I know who Tom Brady is because I know his stats and I know about his life, right? Because I can Google him. But in the way that I would know a close friend or my wife, deeply, intimately, close, we know the Lord. Philippians 3 builds off of this idea and that's why today's sermon is titled Knowing God. If there's one thing that I have been praying for us to walk away with, it is that we would live the rest of our lives to know who the Lord is. I've also been praying that his word would reveal to us the value of earthly things compared to the surpassing worth of knowing God. And that the Lord would show us that there is no such thing as a super Christian or someone who God has blessed more than another. And I pray that so that we would respond to him, rising from our earthly state and walking with him, knowing who he is to live the rest of our lives for his glory and knowing him deeply. And so let us pray that his word would show us those things today. Lord, I thank you so much for this gathering. Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are here. 
I pray as we look at your word in Philippians 3, God, your spirit would speak to us in a way that it never has before. That these words that Paul wrote down would hit us differently. That we would understand that he is speaking from experience of knowing you and that you would create in our hearts a deep longing to know you that way. And that all of us who are filled with your spirit would respond to you. And those of us in this room or who are listening who do not know you, God, I pray that they will surrender their lives to you today to live the rest of their life in seeking your presence. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is actually in the middle of his letter. There were two chapters before this, and there's one chapter after this. The audience of the, cha- of the book of Philippians is a group of people that he knows intimately. See, Paul started the church in Philippi, and he actually spent a little bit over two years living and serving with that church. And so it even makes it more fitting that after a little bit over two years, we are looking at Paul's words to a group of people that he knows intimately. I think one of the biggest regrets and also greatest joys that my wife and I share is that we didn't meet with all of the community group leaders whenever we first got here. But for the past four weeks or so, we've been trying to meet with everyone and the stories that we've heard and just the relationships that we were able to build over a meal have been ones that I will um, long for, for I think the rest of my life. There's a special group of people in this room. And so it's important to note that this letter is written by a man to his close friends, a group of people that he knows intimately. We've been looking at the Old Testament, a bunch of books, and most of them are written by prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And it's important for us to know that this letter is not written like those books. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah were writing books where God was literally telling them what to say. Here are my words. Write it down. Tell Israel. Philippians is not written that way. Philippians is written by a man whom the the Lord has anointed his words. God has anointed these words in this chapter, no doubt about that. But this is written as a man who is writing to his friends. And so we need to understand that the words that we read here are not God saying, thus says the Lord, but ones where Paul is speaking from his personal experience. Whenever Paul talks about his relationship with the Lord here in chapter 3 of Philippians, we have to understand that this is the relationship that everyone filled with the Holy Spirit can have with God. And his response is one that everyone who knows God deeply should respond with. And so, I would like to invite you to stand with me to read chapter 3 of Philippians. It's 21 verses, so you might want to stretch your legs a little bit. We'll be standing for a little bit of time. So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, and that word can also be understood as brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You may be seated. So there is a lot here um, and there's not a lot of time to go through it. And so I hope and pray that as we get kind of a 50,000 foot view of this amazing chapter, that the Lord would move through that. There's going to be things that we're not going to be able to expound upon here because we simply just don't have the time. Um, but we are going to emphasize, I think, the main thing that Paul was trying to get at, and it is knowing God. The first point today comes from verses 11, uh, 1 through 11, and it is we count everything a loss so that we may know God. We count everything a loss so that we may know God. No God is at the end of that. So verse one, we're going to walk verse by verse through this because I believe that's the best way to see this. He starts it off and says, finally, in verse one. Now, I am no scholar. I have no seminary degree. I don't know how to speak Greek. But there is a really cool resource called Blue Letter Bible. And if you go to it, it shows you what everything means. And you get to read about it and it makes you feel like you're smart. And so I went in and looked at these things. And if there's anything that you hear me say that's like, wow, he did a lot of research. I didn't. It took me five minutes. Um, I got it from Blue Letter Bible. But here's something we need to understand. That word finally can also be translated to now we're moving on to another topic. It's in the middle of this letter it's not him saying finally and then going on for another 20 minutes. It's him transitioning to a new thing, which lets us know we don't really need to understand what happens in verse chapters one and two to really grasp chapter three. So he's transitioning. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. Have joy. Smile. Praise God. Be grateful. Have joy in God. And then he says, to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Which tells us that he's saying rejoice in God because what he's about to say. Not just what he's about to say in verse two, but what he's gonna say for the rest of the chapter. 
And the fact that he says to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. This tells us that what we're about to read about is something Paul taught to the Philippians while he was there in Philippi. This is a piece of Paul's normal teaching, so to speak, which means it's applicable for all of us. Everyone sitting in this room, believer or not, need to hear what's going to be said. And we're meant to have joy in it. Rejoice in the Lord because of what he's going to say. So what does he say? He says, look out for the dogs in verse two. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now you're like, wow, who is he talking about? Um, Here he's referencing Jewish people who claim to be Christians. So these are people who were Jews who followed the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, professed faith in Jesus Christ, and then said that salvation comes from grace in Jesus after everything you can do. After you follow the Old Testament law as much as you can, then Jesus will save you. He calls them mutilators of the flesh and evildoers because they would circumcise the Gentiles who professed faith in Jesus. And they would say, you actually need to be a Jew. You need to follow the Jewish law. And so he says, they're mutilators of the flesh. These people live their lives focusing on pleasing God through their actions as they followed the Jewish law. These people today, if they were still around, these people today would say that their true worship hinges on their attendance to a church service. They would say that their true worship hinges on whether or not they finish their Bible reading plan faithfully. They would say that their true worship hinges on how much they serve the church or how long it's been since they've looked at pornography. These people focus on action. They say their salvation and their worship of God is their action. And God is only pleased with them and he will only show them grace if their actions follow. And Paul's saying, look out for these people, they are evil. These people do not understand the gospel. And then he explains what true faith in Christ is. He says, we are the circumcision. He says that to kind of put a divide between. He's like, these people think that they know, but they don't. We are the true circumcision. Those who've been circumcised by the heart, who have been changed on the inside. He said, we worship by the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's four things there. We're the circumcision. We worship by the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. So the first thing is we are the circumcision. He says this, he's saying we are saved actually. And we're actually saved not because of what these Jewish people are doing. We're not saved because of our actions, but we're saved by the next thing he says. He says we're saved because we worship by God's spirit, by the spirit of God. What does he mean by this? Worship is not just a genre of music, just so that we know. Worship is a heart change. It's what happens on the inside and our lives respond to God in worship. When anyone puts their faith in Jesus, trusts them with their life, he saves them. In fact, Jesus was God coming on the earth as a man to die on a cross for us and resurrect from the grave. And his blood that he spilt on the cross was blood that you deserve to spill yourself. And when we trust Jesus with our life, his blood cleanses us, cleanses us from our sin, our unrighteousness, our rebellion, our own wicked way. And when we are cleansed, God promises to send his spirit to dwell inside of us. Spirit of God, God, the creator of the universe dwelling in us. But the spirit dwelling in us isn't all that it does. 
In fact, the scripture talks about the Spirit having multiple different functions. One of those being our main avenue to knowing the Lord is communing with His Spirit. But also, God promises in Ezekiel 36 and many other passages that God's Spirit is used to make us walk in His way. To make us worship Him rightly. So worshiping by His Spirit is being led by His Spirit. To worship Him in the way that He desires to be worshipped. Not following the law, but following His Spirit. And because God does not contradict Himself, His Spirit leading you will lead you to follow the law. But following the law and doing righteous actions is not what saves. What saves is putting your trust in Jesus' blood and resurrection. That's what saves. And His Spirit causes us to walk in right action. The salvation comes after the action. Or I'm sorry, before the action. <laughs> salvation comes by faith. Action follows. Just so that we're clear. <laughs> Last day, speaking heresy. So, he then says we worship by the Spirit of God. And the third thing he says is we glory in Christ Jesus. Well, if you go to Blue Letter Bible, I was like, that's a really weird wording. What does it mean to glory? Well, what does this word mean in Greek? This word in Greek can actually be translated into a bunch of other things. This word in Greek can be translated to boast or brag. And so he's saying, we worship by God's spirit and we brag on Christ. We boast on Christ. As Trip Lee would say, you're meant to brag. And so we brag on what Jesus has done. This separates us from those who focus on action and church attendance to be their salvation. And it switches us to say, we brag on Christ. Christ's the one that saved me. Not because I did any of this stuff, but because Jesus died. We glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying we brag about the righteous actions of Jesus and not our own because Jesus did it all. So we respond to God by living by his spirit and we brag on what Christ has done, which is where sharing the gospel comes in. You don't need tools to know how to share the gospel if you have his spirit dwelling inside of you. You brag on what Jesus has done in your life and the gospel will be shared. Out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of that overflow is what the lost need to hear throughout the whole world. And then he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. A very bad Bible reading etiquette is to look at a word and say, well, it means something in this book, so it must mean something in this, the same thing in this book. That's not it. When he says the word flesh here, he's not talking about our sinful nature. He's talking about anything physical, anything in this world. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. These Jewish people, they're putting confidence in their actions. They're putting confidence in the flesh, but we don't. And then he continues from verses four through six to brag about all of the ways that Paul is confident in the flesh. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. These Jews think they have confidence. I am way better than them. Is essentially what Paul says. He says, if anyone else thinks that they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a high tribe. Like you're like, wow, tribe of Benjamin, that's a big deal. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am the best Hebrew. As to, a, I'm a Pharisee. A Pharisee, they were like the elite, the ones who followed the law better than everyone. And he said, I was the best Pharisee. And as to zeal, as to passion, I killed people. I was a persecutor of the church. I put people in prison. I held other people's cloaks while I watched Christians get murdered. I was passionate about God's glory. 
And then he says, as to the law, blameless. He says, I followed the law perfectly. Now we know he didn't, but in terms of these Jews, they, they did not stand up. They had a bunch of sin. Paul followed it perfectly. And then he says, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. If we were talking about physical things the religious people today value, it would be your ability to preach. Paul would brag and say, I was the best preacher. I was the preacher of preachers. He would say, I had the biggest church. We had the best worship service. I have been faithfully serving for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Or I have been sharing the gospel every day, or etc. Fill in the blank of what a righteous action is. And this is what he's bragging about. He's saying, I was the best at actions. And don't get me wrong. Following God's law? Yeah, we're supposed to do that. That's a good thing. To walk in God's way is good. And I'm not saying that any of these things are bad. I'm up here preaching for goodness sake. Like, guys, doing the things that God has asked us to do is the life we are meant to live. But doing the things that God has asked us to do should come after we surrender and trust that his action is the only one that saves us. And all of the action we do should be out of response to us knowing the Lord deeply. And it's also not what we boast in. See, Paul followed the law of God, but that's not what he boasted in or where he founds his identity. And then he says in verse seven, the next thing. He says, whatever gain I had, talking about the religious gain, a Pharisee, a Hebrew, the best follower of God, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. All the religious things he gained, he counted as loss. Why? He counts it as loss for God's sake. You look at that in the Greek, that can be translated to because of, through, or by, or for. And so he's saying, I count it all as loss because of Christ's salvation. Because he did the righteous actions that I could not do. I counted all as lost through Christ. I gained salvation because he did the actions and I didn't. Or I counted all as lost for Christ. I lose everything for him. And then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just talk about the religious gain. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything. Everything. That includes everything. As a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says everything compared to knowing God is a loss. And then if we didn't get the point there, he says in the next, the same verse, sorry. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him. He says, knowing God makes everything else garbage. (laughs) That means that Paul just doesn't know the surpassing, like he doesn't just know that God is good. He has experienced intimately the Lord and he's experienced enough of the Lord to say, it is worth losing everything for the sake of Christ. This is the treasure that Jesus was talking about in the field. Knowing him is worth selling everything for with joy. And he knows it's rubbish because he's seen the value of God. Do we? Do we know the surpassing worth of God firsthand? 
are these words that we can say. Because he's not saying these words because he's Paul. He's saying these words because he's filled with God's spirit, as many of us in this room are. And if you are not, and you see this, there's nothing that compares to a life of surrendering it to Christ and trusting him with everything. Today, Christians who have access to knowing God are willing to run to everything else instead of him. I'm guilty of this firsthand. I run and we run to our Netflix shows or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime to satisfy and bring us peace, only for them to leave us wanting when we turn them off. We're willing willing to run to the NFL, NBA, Cowboy or Sooner Sports to bring us happiness or belonging, only for them to leave us longing for more when the season is over, especially if you're a Cowboys fan. (laughs) Or many of us run to sin and even further away from the Lord, hoping that sin will satisfy because we don't know the Lord. We compare and look for life in these things, but these things do not Do not compare to knowing God. Like, would you rather spend an hour or two each day watching Stranger Things? Or would you rather spend an hour or two each day getting to know the creator of the universe? Like, guys, I don't think we understand. I don't understand the depth of this. I've been raised in church my whole life. This has been a message that I've heard since I've been born. And God has been something that we say, but not really understanding the depth of the value of this. Angels for eternity have been crying, holy, holy, holy at his throne. And they're not even looking at him. They cover their face because he is that glorious. And he has decided to dwell in us because he loves us. We get to know him. So let us know him. And because we're not in the kingdom yet, these things here on earth, they muddy the things up. I'm willing to say that a lot of times Netflix or taking a nap or playing video games or something looks more enticing than spending time with God. And personally, it is difficult for me to seek the Lord when I start to think about earthly things. And it's like that. I start to think about it and I'm like, man, I really like what this, this has going on. Until I get to a point where I give Christ just a second. I dwell on him for just a second. And then I get to see that all of this is worth nothing compared to knowing God. I see the value in what I've been missing and not seeking the Lord. This is why Paul counts all things as garbage so that he can gain Christ. This is it. When we consider everything as rubbish, there is nothing stopping us from seeking the Lord and knowing him more. There is nothing more valuable that you can do with your time than seeking and knowing the Lord because it is in our knowing of the Lord that we are changed and he is glorified. Gaining him should be our aim. So why don't we throw it all away? Throw away the other forms of distraction. Why not? We gain so much more. And the pursuit of knowing God intimately must result in the forsaking of all things the earth wants us to love so that we can gain things that the earth can't ever give us. And that is God. Which is what he says in verse nine. He says, I count everything as a loss in verse eight because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
Verse 9, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not earning it myself. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, what does he mean to be found in Christ? This is the question. When we are found in him, his righteousness is ours. Your petty works of holiness and our wretched sins melt away when we're found in Christ. That is salvation. Trusting him to fulfill us and trusting him to lead us, trusting him to save us, putting faith in him. That is salvation. And as he says so perfectly in verse nine, it doesn't come from the law. It doesn't come from my works. He says, it doesn't come from a righteousness that I've earned. It doesn't come from how much I've obeyed or how much I've showed up to church or taught my Sunday school class or read the Bible. It doesn't come from that. My righteousness comes from trusting God, putting faith in him. Please don't let those words fall off of us without understanding the gravity. That is the gospel. We don't do these religious things to save us. We do them because we love the Lord and he has already saved us. And he says that here. He says in verse 10, I do these things and I trust him that I may know him and that I may know the power of his resurrection. Do we know the power of raising someone from the dead? That's a lot of power. That I may know the power of God and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. In short, he says, faith cleanses us so that we may know him. When we know him, we are worth, or I'm sorry, it is worth knowing him more. And when we know the worth of knowing him, everything is a loss, so we forsake it all. And he says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection being the salvation on the day that Jesus returns, the day that we all long for. But we'll talk about that at the end. He says, any means possible. Are we willing to do anything so that we can know the Lord more? Any means possible. Then count everything as a loss to seek him, if that is the case. And then he exhorts us. Paul knows that these words that he are saying, he's saying here are heavy. That's why the second point in this message this morning is we press on to know God. We press on to know God. And it comes from verses 12 through 16. We press on to know God. He says here, I count it all as loss that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect. He has to clarify. He says, I have not obtained perfection yet. Paul is saying, I still sin. I still am walking here on this earth. I still am struggling to know the Lord more. I have not obtained this perfection, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Why does he press on? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is why Christianity is different from everyone else. This is why the LDS or the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus cannot offer what Christ is offering us is because Christ has already chosen us. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because I'm already Christ's. God loves me so much to choose me already and make me his. 
Those who have trusted Jesus to save them are already his. He has made you his own. He's claimed you. He says, I see the sin that you've been living in. I see the wretchedness. I see that you're taking pleasure in these worldly things, but I want you anyway. I'm making you mine so that you can throw all of those things away and see how valuable it is to be mine. This is why he's created us, is to know him. This world is broken and it wants to pull us away from that. But Christ is claiming us, making us his own so that we can know the worth of knowing him. That is the only reason why we can press on is because he has claimed us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, press on to know him more. But how do we press on exactly? Well, Paul does not leave us without an answer there either. In verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God and Christ Jesus. He says, here's how I press on. I forget what lies behind. I forget what happened yesterday. I forget what happened this morning. I forget what happened 20, 30 years ago, and I press on. This includes difficulty that we've had in our lives. This includes sin that we may or may not be walking in currently. I lay it down. I trust Jesus to save me and I press on towards him to know him more. But in Northwest here, as we press on to know him more, we forget what lies behind and we strain forward to what lies ahead. This also includes our church legacy. No one denies that Northwest was something great. And even before covid as Paige and I heard from the community group leaders, there was a lot of amazing things going on before Paige and I got here during COVID. And the legacy of this church is something that we can praise God about. But no matter how Northwest used to be, we are all in the same place now. So brothers and sisters, let us forget what lies behind and press on towards what lies ahead. The Lord has so much in store for this body right here. He has things planned, things ready to do if we would only press on to know him more and walk in how his spirit is leading us. Praise God for what he did. But let's forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, moving on the path that the Lord has set for us. And what is that path in verse 14? I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on towards the goal and the prize. The prize being the pearl that the merchant found or the treasure that he found in the field. The prize being knowing God for eternity and knowing him intimately. So we press on to know the Lord, know him intimately. We count everything as a loss and we press on. Paul exhorts us because he knows that these words are hard to digest He says in verse 15 and 16, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He says, let those of us who are mature, those of us who know the Lord deeply, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you from you knowing him more. We should never cease in our pursuit of him. If we have been following him for 80 years or we became a Christian yesterday, our pursuit of God should be relentless. As Paul said, he is in a race and he has not finished it until he hits the grave. 
And so for all of us in this room, our pursuit of God does not cease. Nowhere in scripture does it says that our relentless pursuit of knowing God is over until he makes everything perfect. And last time I checked, he has not. So count yourself as a mature believer and get to know him. Count it all as loss. And it is difficult. That's why he says press on and strain. And that's why we're meant to walk by his spirit. Ezekiel 36 makes it very clear. He says, I will make you walk in my way with my spirit. God's spirit makes us move. And so we walk by his spirit, trusting him with what he has in store. Those who are mature in their knowledge of the Lord know this well. And so let's imitate them because they're imitating Christ, which is the third and final point this morning. Is we imitate God to know God. See, for, as, a, as a son, you learn a lot of things from your parents, whether that be how to do the dishes or other things like that, how to mow the lawn, but you imitate them. And as you spend time with those who are teaching you and you're doing the things that they're doing, you learn more about them. You learn how they think. You learn what they're doing and why they're doing it. The same applies to the God of the universe and he's designed things on this earth to point to him. Paul understands this because he's knowing God deeply and he's not, remember, he doesn't know the Lord deeply because he is crazy. He knows the Lord deeply because he trusts him and the spirit of God dwells inside of him. And he says in verse 17, brothers, that can also be translated to brothers and sisters. He says, everyone, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us, pointing to Paul and probably Timothy and a couple other people that came to the church of Philippi. Paul exhorts them to imitate his life and his way of thinking and to imitate those who walk like Paul. Notice how he doesn't just say, imitate who you think is mature. He says, imitate people who walk like me. Now, why does he say that? That is a big deal. He says that because in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is yoked up with the Lord, walking with him side by side. And he's saying, look, I've gotten to know the Lord deeply as I've walked in this way. So walk with me, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. The best way to imitate Paul is to actually imitate Christ himself. Therefore, imitate Christ. Allow Paul to be an example of what imitating Christ looks like. And if we are imitating Christ, we must not tarry. Do not wait. But instead, live like Christ. Don't wait for someone else to show you how to live like Christ. Instead, go find him. Seek him in his word. Seek his spirit. Listen to him and walk by the spirit of God. This passage challenges us to imitate Paul, this imitating Christ. And the question is, church, if Paul and Jesus were in Northwest Baptist service and they were a part of our gathering, how would they be walking? Would they wait for an event to serve at or for someone to bring them someone to disciple? Or would they press on to know God and, their knowledge, and in their knowledge of the Lord, find those people who the Spirit is leading them to? And find those areas that the Spirit is leading them to serve in. They would take initiative and walk by God's Spirit. And they would count everything as a loss compared to knowing Him. And so as we imitate the way that Jesus and Paul lived, understand that walking in this way might seem difficult, but it is an avenue to which we know the Lord more. 
When we step out of our comfort zone, out by ourselves, it gets scary. You can see my legs now. That's horrifying. I'm just kidding. But we trust the Lord whenever we're out here. Whenever we're out, outside of our comfort zone, the only thing we can do since we have nothing else to grab on is to trust the Lord. And when we trust the Lord and we walk by him, he is there speaking to us, leading us. And we get to imitate him there. It is only outside of the things that we do not know that we trust him, walking by his spirit. And it is scary and it's difficult. But when we know the Lord more, nothing else compares. In fact, everything else is rubbish. And so, therefore, imitate Christ. And, in fact, he actually brings back up the Jews that were at the beginning in verses 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These people are enemies of Jesus. But check out what makes them an enemy in verse 19. Their end is destruction. Okay, but why? Their God is their belly. Okay, what does that mean? They glory in their shame. Okay, with minds set on earthly things. That is why they are an enemy of Christ. Because their minds are dwelling on the things that are physical. Their minds are dwelling on what they desire. Their God is their belly. What they worship is what they want. And they glory, they're excited about, they boast in those things that will give them shame. The physical things, the earthly things. When our minds are set on earthly things and we spend time doing that which is not helpful, we become enemies of Christ. This is why Paul says there is a surpassing value in knowing him. And because we know him, everything else is rubbish. This is why he says this. It's because we get to know the Lord when we don't set our minds on earthly things. And we live for the Lord. And it may seem hard, like we're losing a lot. Especially when we think about it here. But we have to remember that we gain Christ. This is what he says in verse 20 and 21 when he closes this. He reminds them of who we really are. He says, our citizenship. He says, but, to say like, yes, it's difficult, but. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So by the power that gives God to move all things, he will change us, make us like his glorious body whenever he returns. And he will do that because we are citizens of the kingdom. This is what we hope for in the end. Our main hope is not what our citizenship is here on the earth. Our main hope is for citizenship in eternity. And so we live for that end. We fight for that end. We press on, we strain forward, we count everything else as rubbish so that we may be found in Christ and that we may gain Christ and know him deeply because there is nothing more valuable than knowing God. So Northwest, as we are king, citizens of the kingdom and we await the day when his glorious return arrives, because we've trusted him with our lives for salvation, let us count everything as a loss so that we may gain him. Let us press on towards him so that we may know him more and glorify him with our actions and let us imitate him 
so that we may look like him, be found in him, and we would be able to say ourselves, everything else is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The life of knowing God is the life that all Christians live. So Northwest, as we live the rest of our lives, I implore you to spend that time, whether it be a year or 80, to spend that time doing everything that you can to know God more. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you and we thank you for what you're doing. Lord, you are glorious and we do not comprehend how amazing you are, how majestic you are, how truly holy you are. So I pray for myself and for others in this room like me who do not grasp the surpassing value of knowing you, that you may show us grace That because you have claimed us, Lord, you would give us the strength to press on by your spirit to know you more. I pray that people in Oklahoma City who do not know you right now would hear the gospel from these people in this room. And that you would claim them as well. That my brothers and sisters here would be known for their faith and the way that they're responding to the Lord in worship as the church in Thessalonica was. But I pray that we would be able to exhort other believers in the same way that Paul did in Philippians 3. From our experience of you and our knowledge of you, Lord, I pray that you glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.